Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back, listeners. I'm your host, Sonia Senek. How do you build a Canadian organization into a globally recognizable brand? We are lucky to be joined today by Pierce Handling, the CEO of TIFF from 1992 to 2018, to ask him this very question. There are great ideas everywhere and amazing local initiatives that are embraced by their community. When organizations scale, there's a constant tension between the seed of something that is nurtured by a few people and the magnetic pull to make it bigger and to reach more people. There are some examples of where scaling has resulted in an even stronger local and global community. The Toronto International Film Festival is one of these examples. Pierce was the CEO of TIFF during years that premiered movies like Green Book, which went on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Free Solo, that went on to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary, and Roma, which won three Academy Awards, including Best Director. Pierce Handling is an officer of the Order of Canada, and has been awarded the Order of Ontario. He was also named to France's highest cultural insignia. Today, we talk to Pierce about his vision for bringing Canadian cinema to a global audience, the similarities and differences between TIFF, Cannes, and the Sundance Film Festival, his pinch-me moments as CEO, how and when directors like Steven Spielberg have launched their films at TIFF, and the 10-year journey to build a forever home to celebrate Canadian cinema, the TIFF Bell Lightbox. We are launching this episode on day one of TIFF 2023. It is on a mission, as it always is, to transform the way people see the world through film. So grab some popcorn and please enjoy Pierce Handling. Welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to host you. Oh, my pleasure. So I want to start at the very beginning with your experience with Canadian cinema. You have a depth of knowledge in the industry, being deputy director of the Canadian Film Institute, then teaching Canadian cinema at Carleton and Queens. I'm curious what first sparked your passion for movies and film? Well, of course, as a kid, I was exposed to a lot of film. And it was a strange mix, actually. My mother was English. So as a child, we were taken, it was a big deal, of course, my brother and I to be taken off to films. And my earliest memories are probably of comedies, Jerry Lewis in particular, and there was a British comic called Norman Wisdom, as well as war movies, because my father was in the military. And of course, my mother had been in London during the war, the Blitz and everything. So we just, you know, that was the standard stuff that was around. And I was very interested in military history anyway. So I saw a lot of war movies and a lot of uh, comedies. I had all my high school in Germany. So at that point in time, of course, cinema going was completely limited. Basically, there was very little. I was on a Canadian army base for two years. There were a few screenings. And then I went to British boarding school and we had a Saturday screening, which is a big deal. And of course, most of those were British films. So my Canadian, you know, as a kid, I was seeing National Film Board documentaries at school. I have a vague memory of those, like Norman McLaren shorts and things like that. But uh, I was really, not that there was a lot of Canadian film being made in the 60s that I would have had access to if I had been back in Canada. But when I came back to Canada, I was completely anglicized. You would not have recognized me as a Canadian at all. I'd been in the English system for three years, the last three years of my high school. And my degree was in history. And I fell in love with cinema very quickly. Most of my friends that I made in university were in the arts, not in history. They were in theater. 
And of course, a lot of them were in film. So I stumbled into that world very quickly and started to see an awful lot of European art cinema in particular, which is what I was most interested in. Bergman, Chabrol, Godard in particular. And then I started to see some of the American films because a very close friend of mine who was deeply into cinema was a huge, he was very, very interested in people like Hitchcock, Ford and Hawks. So I got to see that as well. So I was not really, hadn't been exposed to Canadian film, but I remember going when I was, I think in my third year university, I went to see Going Down the Road, which was playing commercially in a Kingston theater. And of course, that was a novelty to actually see a Canadian film in a commercial cinema. And of course, it left a huge impact because it was so real. It was, I mean, I didn't know Toronto that well, but I'd certainly been to Toronto. But it just showed what surrounded us as Canadians. There was a great sense of ownership around that film. When I got my first job at the Canadian Film Institute, they had a screening program and they started a small film festival called Film Expo. And that's where I started to see more seriously Canadian film. And the big revelation after going down the road was Quebec cinema. And I remember the first Quebec film that really resonated with me was a Gilles Carl film called La, La Vraie Nature de Bernadette, The True Nature of Bernadette. And these were films in a way that allowed me to connect with the Canadianness in me that had been eliminated for about five years, all of my high school. Obviously, I was still a Canadian. My dad was a Canadian, but I'd been away from Canada in those really formative years of 12 to 17. So and become very, very Europeanized. So this was my access back to my own Canadianness. And I felt that not initially, but upon reflection, when I started to seriously write about Canadian cinema, and I started to do that quite quickly, I realized that was what I was doing. I was actually trying to connect with who and what I was as a Canadian, that the Canadian side of me. And the wonderful thing about Canadian film was there were very, very few people at that point in time who were seriously examining it. So it was virgin territory. And I was very interested in criticism, not journalism, but more academic criticism. And so doing more thorough investigation, historical research, as well as critical examination of the work, it was untouched territory. You didn't feel that there were people above you, mentors or icons who had actually covered this territory and you were working in their wake. You know, you actually had to respond to them. No, you were actually setting the parameters yourself. And there was a very important uh, person who I met at university who was actually the head of the Queen's Film Department, Peter Harcourt. And Peter was really the father of Canadian film studies. And Peter and I became lifelong friends. And it was not really through Peter because I found Canadian cinema on my own. But when I did, he was beginning to write some key articles on Canadian film. And of course, our interests began to intersect then. And so not only did he become a friend, he was also a colleague, you know, somebody who I would share my writing with. I, almost every article I wrote, I would show to Peter. But that was my insertion into Canadian film studies. There was a lot of historical research that hadn't yet been done. And there was some work that the CFI was doing just in terms of pure documentation, you know, what Canadian feature films had been made, who had made them. So I began to get involved in that. There was a book I got involved with that was documenting Canadian feature films in the 60s. And that led me into research in Montreal as well as in Ottawa. But also I started to connect with the filmmakers. I was asking them questions and I started to do more and more of that kind of firsthand primary research. And that was 
you know, they, of course, were, they welcomed any interest in their work. So gradually, you just sort of expanded that interest. And the CFI, the Canadian Film Institute, gave me the opportunity to do that. We could screen films, and I started to do more and more. We started a publications program. We started to publish books on Canadian filmmakers. I wrote one on Don Shabib and commissioned other works on people like Norman McLaren, Richard Leiterman. We did a book on the National Film Board. I worked on a film that the film board produced, Don Britton directed. I did all the research for that. Well, I did not do all the research, but I did a large part of it with Quebec collaborators. But it was a very exciting moment. I mean, it was the 60s was a great period for Canadian film. So was the 70s. And then things started to change a little bit. But I, in Ottawa, I met like-minded people, students at Carleton, actually, students of Peter Harcourt, because Peter was now teaching in Ottawa at Carleton. They were Canadian nationalists, very interested in Canadian film. And they formed themselves into something called the Canadian Film Group and ran a lot of Canadian screenings. And we were really connecting to the Canadian filmmakers, especially the young filmmakers of the time. And it was a very exciting period for me because we were, there were some very interesting Canadian films we made at that point in time. And the Canadian government had put money behind it, Canadian Film Development Corporation. There was really an attempt to connect with the Canadian audience in the 70s. It's funny, you know, thinking of the situation these days, you know, as Matt Johnson's about to release Blackberry, thinking about what it was like in the 70s when there was real excitement around the release of some of the major Canadian films. And I think for young filmmakers like Matt and others, it's just, it's a bit of a different moment, to be honest. There's not quite the same media excitement and attention. So I felt I lived, you know, I was very lucky to have been a part of the 60s and the 70s. And then, of course, when I moved to Toronto, it was just on the verge of people like Adam McGoyan and Patricia Rosema, Peter Mettler, Bruce McDonald. I mean, a whole wave of Toronto-based filmmakers, some of whom I knew from my work in Ottawa, but of course, a lot of them were young first-time filmmakers coming out of Ryerson, coming out of U of T, coming out of York University. So I got to meet them, and we were all basically the same age. I was maybe a little bit older than some of them, but it was a generational thing, and that was a very exciting moment in Canadian film, too. I want to next go to the Toronto Festival of Festivals, but before we do, when you reflect back on that time in the 60s and 70s, when you're describing getting back in touch with your Canadianness and having that gap and coming back and sort of having this discovery phase of getting in touch with the Canadian film industry through Quebec and through Ottawa and where you were, what was the pull for you to continue to go deeper? Like, was there a common thread or an essence of Canadian film at that time that really sparked a deep connection for you? Yeah, there were a number of things. The Quebec cinema, I really responded to you know, the work of Gilles Carle, Jean-Pierre Lefebvre, Denis Arcan. There was an incredible sense of authenticity. There was placed against a strong sense of political commitment. You know, youth trying to find itself, the identity. There, it was definitely a search for Quebec identity. So that kind of matched my own search for identity at that point in time too. And, of course, what I did respond to in all of the Canadian films, not just the Quebec cinema, but also English-Canadian work, was the strong sense of landscape and placing characters in landscape and landscape being maybe as important, if not more important, than the characters themselves. I mean, this is, you know, a little self-evident in hindsight. I mean, group of seven, et cetera, et cetera, where there's very few figures. You know, there's little portrait art in the group of seven. It's basically landscape. So there was something about that, because as a child, of course, I loved the four seasons. And I was a big 
my parents were outdoor people, athletes, and it was in the mountains and I was skiing. And so there was a very strong connection to landscape. And as I looked at British cinema and American cinema, not that there wasn't, but of course there was much more focus on character, plot, narrative. And I felt a tentativeness in Canadian cinema that extended in every kind of way through to the way actors spoke, uh, actors looked on screen, through to the lack of rigor in their screenplays. They weren't as polished, as worked out, psychologically rich as British or American films. They were much more open-ended. They did not resolve their tensions. In fact, sometimes there were not that many tensions in the films. They were not interested in that. And there were a lot of things in that cinema that interested me more than classic cinema, I guess. You know, my tastes were beginning to move in a different direction. I mean, the person that really triggered my passion for cinema was uh, Jean-Luc Godard. And I saw my first Godards when I was at Queen's. I was about 18, I guess, 19. And it was a cinema unlike any I'd seen before at all. I mean, he broke every single rule in the book. He threw out all the conventions, all the grammar. He rewrote it. And I'd never seen that freedom. You know, commercial cinema, you're really trained to look at film narratively and conventionally. You're really trained that way. And the European cinema that I was seeing, I was doing very different things. And that, of course, intrigued me. And to have a rebel like Godard just like throw out the playbook, I, of course, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, somewhat rebellious, pretty rebellious, I got immediately attracted to that. So the Canadian films, in a funny way, grew a little bit out of that. They weren't as rebellious, although the Quebec films certainly were. There was an anger and a rebellion there that you could really feel. But they were trying to locate their own voice. And, you know, I'll use that word voice a lot. They were trying to locate their own voice. And it was a different voice. I mean, Peter Harcourt always said that Canadian cinema is like a foreign language cinema to Canadians or foreign cinema to Canadians. And he's right, because we don't see it. It's not around us in the same kind of way. And it actually does have a different vocabulary. And we just haven't been trained as an audience to look at that vocabulary or that style and understand it. I mean, he's right. We've been colonized. We were colonized by the British, by the Americans, and of course, in Quebec, by the French. So we're a colonial nation, and we look to our artistic examples elsewhere. It's taken a long time for Canadians to, and I'm not sure we have yet really found our own voice, but it's certainly, it's a process of exploration. And being so close to America has hindered us in a way that it hasn't hindered the Australians, the New Zealanders, and in quite the same way. You know, I think there was an authenticity in Australian cinema in the 70s that they found fairly quickly, although it was very conventional cinema, but they found an authentic Australian voice. And it was a little bit more of a struggle in Canada, but it was it matched my own struggle to find my own Canadian identity. I had a very strong sense of identity, but it was a very split one because of my education and because I came from a family that was, you know, half British and half Canadian. Well, very strong British because all my grandparents are British. So, you know, just trying to find your Canadianness within that, that spectrum was the, the exploration that I undertook. And it sounds like the openness of the landscapes, not resolving conflict or not having as much conflict, that space to discover was something that was really motivating and appealing for you and almost maybe freeing for you. It's also the confusion of the characters, that kind of restless, 
uncertain, wandering search for something they weren't quite sure about. They didn't really, it wasn't as goal-oriented, you know, success-oriented as American cinema. It was something else. It was much more tentative, Mm -hmm. much more inchoate. You know, it wasn't quite as expressed. It wasn't clear what they wanted. I mean, when you look at some of the films, like Going Down the Road, people come to the big city looking for something that's not there. And there's another example that I could cite, you know, one of my favorite Canadian films, Michel Bros Entre la Mer et l'Eau Douce, the same thing, uh, the same story, you know, a small town boy comes to Montreal and finds something quite different than what he expected. So, yeah, I think it was just, you know, it was mirroring that, mm-hmm. but it was also, it was that sense of discovering myself, but also discovering an area of virgin territory where, I mean, I was watching an enormous amount of cinema at this point in time from around the world. I was really uh, undergoing my own film education in the 70s because I I didn't go to film school or I didn't, you know, have a, my degree was in history. It wasn't in film. So I had to educate myself. And so I was seeing an immense amount of American, but mostly European cinema in the 70s at the same time as I was watching Canadian film. So it was an immersive experience. So, you know, the two things were sort of going in parallel, but I was very interested in as much foreign language cinemas, to be honest, as English language. I mean, I sort of had a love-hate relationship, not even a love relationship with American cinema, but American cinema did not dominate my viewing. I didn't have access to television for a key part of my life, which was pretty important, I think, in terms of my formation as an individual. I was more of a reader, to be honest. I mean, I love books and still read as much as I see films. So I was not a child of visual culture completely, Mm -hmm. sort of a mix of the two. Can you set the scene for us in 1982, the Toronto Festival of Festivals, you first joined there. What was sort of the scope and scale at the time of that festival? And how did a Torontonian get a ticket at the time? How big was it? How did people interact with it? It was pretty tiny. I mean, I went to the first one. I wasn't working in Toronto. I wasn't working for the festival, but I came down and I was there for about five days. And those days I would go anywhere to see a film. I was in Montreal a lot. Stratford Film Festival, I would go to Stratford when it was around. And then Toronto started. So I came down and it was really tiny, but there was, you could tell right away that there was something, there was a spark. There was a life in the city. It was sort of, (laughs) the priesthood was there, I guess, in a funny way. (laughs) You know, there was a lot of other cinephiles you sense that immediately, just that sense of excitement. They did an amazing program of German cinema, Wim Wenders, but they also a lot of you know Fassbinders and Schlundorfs, Klugas. It was a very exciting period for German cinema. So they sort of were, had their hand on a pulse that was important. And then I came for the first, I missed only two editions in the first, whatever, six, seven years before I started to work for it. So I saw it from the very beginning, it sort of began to grow and the spark grew, but you could tell, I mean, it was very easy to get tickets. My closest friend became the first full-time director of the festival in year three, Wayne Clarkson. And Wayne and I had worked together at the CFI in Ottawa. So lifelong friends. He was my you know, closest pal. And I can't remember if I used him to get tickets. I probably didn't need to. You just bought a pass in those days. It was very. It was like 50 bucks or something, and you, it got you access to everything. There was sort of, sort of a you know, crazy festival pass. And I think as a student... Well, maybe, no, I wasn't a student, but it was very simple to get tickets. I don't think there was ever an issue of not being able to get a ticket in the early days. So when I started to work for the festival, I was in lineups and things like that, but I could always get have access. So the sold out part of the festival, I've never really experienced, you know, standing in endless lines for hours. And I got to witness that as an organizer, but I wasn't a part of it. So it was extremely small full-time stuff. 
maybe full-time staff when I joined in 82 of five people. You sort of grow to 50 or 60 and maybe a few more during the festival. But we fit into a tiny office. The permanent office was minute. And then a lot of contract people were brought on board over the course of the summer. And as you got closer to the festival, more and more people. But it was really small. I mean, maybe it was 40 or 50 people who organized the whole thing. And of course, it was extremely energizing. It was a lot of fun. It was very well organized in those days. I mean, we did have problems, technical problems in particular, projection and stuff like that. But it was just, there was a huge upsurge of support from the city. Like I would say immediately from year one, you could tell it. I mean, I'm doing a lot of research on film festivals now, and I think that was difficult for some of the other festivals in North America to connect with an audience right away, like Chicago, San Francisco. I think New York connected with its audience right away, and Toronto certainly did, and as did Montreal. Why do you think Toronto connected with its audience right away? Because it lacked something like this. It was so clear. There was a huge need. There was a passionate cinephile audience in the city. We had better cinema in Ottawa in terms of what we were trying to do in Toronto, in terms of art cinema, European art cinema, Canadian cinema. All the embassies were in Ottawa, so a lot of embassy programming went on, and a lot of that flowed through the CFI. We had our own screening program, our own national film theater in Ottawa. We were running two, three, sometimes four times a week, You know, double bills. This is the classics of cinema. Toronto didn't have that at all. There was no Cinematheque in Toronto. There was an Ontario Film Institute that began to do some of that, but nowhere near as comprehensively. So you knew that there was a huge absence in Toronto. Festivals had grown up in Vancouver and in Montreal in the 60s. <laughs> in Stratford, not in Toronto. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. You know, the most important, uh, along with Montreal, the most important film production center in the country. And there was no festival that started here until the mid-70s. So it was long overdue. And... It hit a moment because it was not just sort of a university-educated cinephile audience who was looking for something like this. Toronto was becoming much more multicultural, multi-ethnic at that point. When I moved to Toronto, it was extremely white, but I, it was sort of just the cusp of the change. And of course, that those cultures, they all wanted to see films from where they came from. Parents did, and of course, they wanted to pass that along to their children. So you knew, along with the growth of the city or the diversity, the growing diversification of the city, you had a built-in audience for films from India, from films from Africa, from films from Latin America, from films from Asia. And that was exciting because the festival turned into something more than just a, an entertainment event, a place to have a good time. It actually was an expression of cultural pride, very specific national cultural pride from a whole variety of different races and you know different countries. So we didn't know that was going to happen. But that was there in the city. It was latent and it was waiting to be released. The Contemporary World Cinema Program, Spotlighting International Cinema, you introduced in 1983. And that was a landmark year for the festival. Did the vision of the festival change that year when you felt that magnetic pull from the audience for multicultural cinema? No, I would say that the vision of the festival was very clear from year one. If you actually go back to the statement that Bill Marshall, who founded the festival along with Hank Van and Dusty Cole, Bill's statement, and I always kind of refer to it because it's very short, it's a couple of paragraphs, is extremely clear in terms of what he was trying to accomplish. And the festival has never really strayed from that. And I think that's important. There hasn't been massive shifts over the course of its life. It actually knew what it was trying to do 
identity-wise from the very beginning. I think that's very important for a cultural institution to have that strong sense of identity. So you're not constantly trying to reinvent yourself. You can actually go back to this touchstone. And, you know, Bill was pretty clear about what he wanted to accomplish, but the international side of it was absolutely essential, as was the Canadian, as was trying to situate Toronto as a production centre. So there were a whole variety of forces that he sort of touched on, art, commerce, industry, diversity, international, Canadian. So that was, yeah, that was there from the very beginning. And I think the people that were hired to program it reflected that. I mean, David Overby, who was one of the key programmers, was an American living in Paris. And David then got to work for the Cannes Film Festival and the selection committee. And David loved Asian cinema. So he was one of the first in the world, actually, from the outside the Asian area to as a foreigner to go into that area and bring the films out. Kay Armitage was a female professor at the uh, University of Toronto with a huge interest in feminist cinema. And Toronto is one of the first festivals to start actually seriously programming women's cinema right from year one. This is in 1976. Kay Armitage is a Canadian filmmaker former programmer at the Toronto International Film Festival and Professor Emerita at the University of Toronto's Cinema Studies Institute and Women and Gender Studies Institute. Her research focuses on women filmmakers, feminist theory, Canadian cinema, and various aspects of international film festivals in books, film magazines, and refereed journals. She has written a large body of scholarly work, including well-known pieces like The Girl from God's Country, Nell Shipman, and Silent Cinema. She was also an editor on Gendering the Nation, Canadian Women's Cinema. Through her academic writing, Kay Armitage has said she hopes to help close the huge gap in writing about feminist filmmaking. So, you know, there was that that trace. The trace of Canadian film was certainly in the festival as well. But the first festival was themed around other festivals, you know, Edinburgh, Cannes, Berlin, et cetera, et cetera. So immediately you're into the international arena. So there was never a sort of moment where we said, no, we want to internationalize it. I think to take the thought a little bit further, you follow success at the very beginning. Whatever is working, you actually decide to exploit it. And of course, at a certain point in time, almost from the very beginning, Bill and Dusty and Hank wanted American films here. They wanted stars and celebrities. So it was that push and pull between the international and celebrity American Hollywood film. So the Hollywood stuff began to happen in the early 80s. So there was that moment when it was beginning to break through. And when that became pretty powerful, it was a pretty powerful voice, we realized that the counter voice had to be just as important. Mm. But Toronto began to establish a reputation in its early years, not from the very beginning, but what was the important breakthrough was when Hollywood started to pay attention. So you just had to make sure that Hollywood didn't overwhelm the festival. And that's when we really started to, we had a lot of Australian films, a lot of British films, a lot of, so a lot of English language film. And when I began to enter the festival, because of my international interest, the first program I did was a Brazilian program. And then the second one I did was a massive, one of the largest Latin American retrospectives ever assembled in the world. And that was done in 86. So I was really interested in non-English language cinema and Canadian film. So it was really important to balance the festival to constantly, and I'm not sure that uh, we've done it totally successfully over the years, but I think I'd probably say that of virtually every festival in the world. The world has changed enormously since when I got involved in the 50 years or so. 
So that has shifted as well. There was much more of an interest, I would say, in the 70s and 80s in international cinema. A lot more foreign language film, subtitle material was being picked up for release, being shown, being distributed. And of course, that has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So you were the CEO of Festival of Festivals as of 1994, that was then renamed the Toronto International Film Festival in 1995. One of the first things I did was to rename it, exactly. Tell us why. Well, Festival of Festivals was a very popular name in Toronto, so it wasn't a very popular move within the city. But we'd outgrown the name in all kinds of ways. You know, Festival of Festivals implies that you're running films from other festivals. That's what you're doing. And of course, at the beginning, that's what we were doing. At a certain point, by the mid-80s, we were running a lot of films that were just coming to Toronto for their premieres. So it was a misnomer, as well as when we traveled internationally. Nobody knew the name Festival Festivals. They all just said, you know, hey, you're from Toronto, you're Toronto, Toronto. So the fact that we would open there, the beginning, my first year, when I was the, I guess, the artistic director of the festival, Helga and I would, you know, do all the trips. Hey, we're from the Festival Festivals. And they kind of look at you blankly, especially when you were in... When we went to Latin America, I'll never forget that. But when you said Toronto, of course, the light went on immediately. So we thought, this is stupid. You know, we just need to call ourselves who we are. Mm-hmm. And international wasn't in the title, nor was film. It was just festival festivals. So it was just a sign and voice of maturity in the festival and probably the growing competitive world of festivals as well around us as we were beginning to move up the pecking order and get more and more profile. We needed a, a name that actually expressed who and what we were. So it was the Berlin Film Festival. It was the Venice Film Festival. It was the Cannes Film Festival. So it became the Toronto Film Festival. It was sort of a no-brainer from my end, but there was a lot of internal resistance. And was that just because what is familiar is comfortable? Completely. Yeah. People love the name in the city. It had been there for almost 20 years. So you know, once you settle on a name like that, Festival of Festivals, it's got, it had a lot of currency in the city, just advertising, media, the audience. They'd all been attuned to what it was. Internationally, though, it was a liability. And during this time of growth, and still TIFF remains a publicly accessible festival, this is a different approach to festivals such as Cannes or Sundance that invites a select group to attend the premieres or any of the film screenings. Was there ever pressure to make the festival privately accessible only? No. And there's no festival that's really privately accessible, like 100%. Even Cannes, there's a very small public that goes to Cannes. So they can, for one section, the director's fortnight. So I wouldn't say there's any festival in the world that's 100% private. I think there was tension that grew probably in the late 80s, early 90s between the industry component, the media the industry that were coming, buyers, sellers, filmmakers, producers, lawyers, agents, and the public. Because we were so primarily, we were predominantly an audience festival until we began to grow. And with that growth, of course, there was that friction. And the great thing about Toronto in the early days was that the industry got to see films with the public. And that was very important because in a lot of the European festivals, they had actually begun to separate the two. So even in a public festival, a big one like Berlin, the press and industry did not mingle with the public, very separate screenings. And we wanted to keep that dynamic alive in Toronto, where the two actually interacted. It proved impossible. You know, at a certain point in time, we actually had to begin to separate them out. So what we tried to do then was the so-called A press, the most important. They had access to the public screenings and they could choose either. But we wanted to make sure that they did have access and continue to have access at a certain point, they just found it more convenient to go to the press and industry screenings. 
But distributors and producers and directors are very savvy and persistent. So a lot of them would court the media and get, you know, like the major names, like a Roger Ebert, for instance, they would make sure that he went to see the film with the public. And somebody like Roger, and there were so many other critics like this, you know, from the American media, they also, I mean, it was a very special audience in Toronto. And everyone noted that. So it was unique to see that those films with the public as opposed to with their fellow professionals. And it is a very different environment. I mean, I've of course been to so many festivals over the years. I know what going to an industry only festival like Cannes and Sundance is predominantly that. I know what that's like versus going into the, you know, the excitement of a public event in Toronto or even Berlin. And what's that difference? Well, I think there's... <laughs> The audience in Toronto is prepared to meet a film at least halfway, if not more so. They're on your side. They go into the film wanting to like the film. And I think that, you know, of course, critics are skeptical, very skeptical and uh, competitive with each other. So, you know, you, you come out of a screening in Cannes and there's kind of instantaneous talk about, you know, you've seen the film, instantaneous opinions being formed that are the extremes. I hated the film. I loved the film. And it's not very useful. I mean, I, I always found that can chat afterwards. It was kind of fun, but I also wanted to separate myself from it a little bit. And in Toronto, you don't get that. I mean, you get the sheer overwhelming enthusiasm of an audience that can actually surprise you. In some cases, I think filmmakers themselves have been surprised. I mean, I had so many comments over the years that for filmmakers, the only time they would actually see their film see their film with the public was in Toronto. That's the only time. And some of them rarely saw their films anyway. They just didn't, you know, once their, the films had been made, they never saw them again. But they would actually go to a public screening of their film. You know, countless number of directors have told me that. Most recently, you know, Spielberg was here with his new film. And, you know, Stephen went to see the film with the public. And he was very nervous about it. But of course, he realized at the end that was the thing to do because you get a real read. So the Toronto public just began to develop this reputation. I mean, for the audience, the industry started to discount some of the enthusiasm because it was misleading. Well, if you were a distributor and you thought you had the biggest hit in the world because of the Toronto response, then you'd release it in the cinemas and it would you know, not do as well. Right. So I mean, that's not just true of Toronto. It's true of a lot of festivals, actually. There's a festival, you know, whatever. It's a hot house atmosphere. So you have to sort of, there's a certain part of the-, the A signal to noise ratio correction yeah, that they do. Exactly. You do ignore. But I've seen the opposite where some films are hated. I, mean, I remember the, you know, the screening of Jane Campion's Sweetie in Cannes, where people just, in the press screening, massive press screening, it was about 2,000 seats. And a lot of people walked out of that press screening. And it's when you walk out of a press screening in Cannes, the seats thud. So oh. you can actually hear it. It's not people silently walking out. It's actually, you know, and, you know, Sweetie's a fantastic film. So that was just, you know, one of those disastrous screenings that went wrong, but the film itself was far more interesting. So festival screenings are extremely tricky. You know, you only have one chance. Well, maybe you have more than, slightly more than one chance, but unveiling the film world premiere for the very first time, it's out there. And once the word starts to spread, you cannot stop it. Do you recall the biggest surprise? I mean, publicly, from the knowledge of TIFF, I would say Slumdog Millionaire, there's that legacy story about it being such a underdog film to go on and gross over $370 million worldwide. Was that the biggest surprise film that premiered at TIFF? Or was there another one that really seemingly came out of nowhere that you can recall? Slumdog Millionaire didn't really surprise me because when I saw it, I saw it alone with Brendan, by the way, 
I think Brendan may have been in the screening room with me in London. I mean, I loved the film immediately. And I thought, well, this is it's such a crowd pleaser. You know, this is going to be a huge hit. So I know that the film had all kinds of problems distribution wise, but it just got sucked into a system. So that didn't really surprise me. I mean, that's a good question in terms of a film that you kind of underrated. God, I'm not sure I could come up with one, to be honest, Sonia. I mean, one may spring into my mind that's actually, you know, I think something like American Beauty is a film like that. The darker films surprise you. I mean, Slub Dog, because it was, there's no stars. It was just you know, basically an Indian film with kids. You know, that film didn't really surprise me. Mm-hmm. There's one, the, the Linkletter film that I'm just trying to struggle with the title. And I can't remember, Jack Black, that we ran. That was a surprise. And School of Rock came to the festival and the studio had basically lost faith in that film. And that's what happens with a lot of festival films, films that end up in festivals. The studio is not quite sure what to do with these films. American Beauty was absolutely like that. They weren't quite sure what they had. Wow. Oh, yeah. No, I know. In hindsight, you say, but no, you don't know. You literally, I'm sure that, you know, no one knew Slumdog Millionaire was going to gross that much money. I mean, it's not a science. It's not, you know, maybe now with all the franchise movies, it's becoming more and more predictable. But for that kind of film, they just pop out of left field. And films you've invested a lot of money with will fall flat. And other films that you have absolutely no expectations for at all will just come out of nowhere. School of Rock, I don't even think the director came, Richard Linkletter. I think Jack Black, we ran it as a gala. And of course, in those days, you actually did want the talent, the major talent to show. And if a director didn't show, it sent a sign to the media, like, why wasn't the director there? It's, you know, because Toronto had become that important at that point in time. So all of those small little signals, you know, the director wasn't there. That means, you know, he's lost, oh, there's a fight with the studio or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or the studio doesn't really believe, it's, whatever. You know, the rumors start to circulate. If a studio shows up with everybody on stage, clearly they believe in the film. If there's a couple of key people that aren't there, they've got to have a pretty good reason. So my memory is that the film, was, I mean, I, I, again, it was one of these, it was like Leaving Las Vegas, another film. I could probably go to that, but I'm not sure how mega, mega a hit that actually was. Leaving Las Vegas, there was no faith in that film whatsoever. All the major festivals, Berlin, Cannes, and Venice had turned that film down. And we were the end of the pipeline. And we loved the film. And we ran it as a gala. And then it went on to much Oscar success and became a huge in Mike Figgis's career, very important. But School of Rock, the Jack Black film, was the same thing. I mean, Jack Black was not really a star at that point in time. Nobody really knew him. And there was just something wacky and crazy about the film. It was an audience film. And again, I don't think the studio really knew how to sell this film. So, you know, it was just a little too quirky for them. But it had a huge reaction out of Toronto. Critical reaction. You know, the, the critics loved it. So that's what a festival can do. And that's why Toronto became very important, especially for the American studios, because it was almost like a test screening for them. And we were far enough, well, we weren't quite far enough away from America, but there was a certain point in time where they they actually trusted us. And all the American media was here, as well as Canadian media. But they could kind of manage and do some damage control on certain screenings if the film didn't meet expectations. But if a film actually popped, then they could really build on that. And so films like Leaving Las Vegas, School of Rock, Slumdog Millionaire absolutely popped and went on a huge success. And there's probably a bunch of others that I could name if I actually seriously looked at that question. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think at the time, 
Jack Black really popular with fans of Tenacious D. Like he has a very, right. you know, he's in all these, his band with Kyle Gass and also he was in right. Saving Silverman. And he was always sort of a side, a hilarious side character. And then he came into the, the forefront and just slayed in that movie. Jack Black is the always hilarious lead vocalist of the band Tenacious D. He formed the duo in 1994 with longtime friend Kyle Gass. Since 2018, he also operates a YouTube channel called Jablinski Games. They won the Grammy Award for Best Metal Performance for The Last in Line in 2015. You may recognize Jack from The Holiday and as the voice and inspiration, I'm guessing, of Kung Fu Panda. So by the time we ran School of Rock, he was not known. He was yeah. just on the cusp of breaking through. And that's fun because the festival, there's so many stories. I mean, I remember, you know, meeting my first encounter with Brad Pitt was with Johnny Swade, a film very early in his career. And when you get to meet um, like Carrie Mulligan, you know, it's the same thing. You're meeting these people before they become elevated to stardom. And I mean, there's so many other, you know, major European directors you could cite that way too, who we've helped in terms of their North American career and some of the Asian directors like John Woo. You know, I remember when we had John Woo's Hard Bullet films and stuff like that, you know, before John became a studio director and, you know, directors like Krzysztof Kieślowski, The Pole and Nanny Moretti, Bellatar. You know, we had so many of these directors before they were sort of, quote, breakout directors or at least breakout directors in the art house circuit, you know, in the festival circuit, which was what we pay so much attention to. So we got to help, you know, actors who really became big, like huge. And they sort of arrived in Toronto as like virtual unknowns. And there were a lot of those. Pierce, do they continue to have a relationship with the festival over the years and oh, yeah. and continue to come back to the event and remember that this was a point in time before all of the stardom. Is there that long-standing relationship that you're able to sustain? For sure there is with a lot of people. I mean, some of them become so huge, but I think they never forget the beginnings, where they started, their first, you know, early films, the first festivals they went to, what that all looked like. I mean, obviously, you know, somebody like a Brad Pitt or George Clooney have become such mega stars, but I think, you no, know, they do. And for sure, directors 100% remember. There's no question. Because as a young director, you're looking for your first major breakthrough, or even not even a major breakthrough, you're just looking for some kind of attention, international attention in particular. So for an international director to come to a North American festival, to break out of the European ghetto, or to break out of their own national ghetto, or for an Asian director, the Latin American director, it's exactly the same thing. Because when Toronto began to elevate itself onto the platform and becoming one of the most important festivals in the world, it was a big deal for them to be invited to Toronto. So when you get to those directors very, very early in their career, it's you establish a long-lasting relationship with them. Directors are extremely faithful to festivals, in my experience. Actors, of course, they're just being moved around the world. But, I mean, like an actress like Isabelle Huppert and Juliette Binoche, they have very close relationships with Toronto because we were there for their early films too. And Juliet and Isabel travel so much, they really support their work. And for them to develop international careers was really important too, to break out of the French ghetto. So they really took that opportunity and Toronto was sort of there as their North American home. They came constantly. I mean, you know, those two actors are in Toronto a lot and there's, you know, so many others you could cite as well. To be a young director, 
premiere your film and also have an audience that is on your side probably feels really special. That's crucial for a young director to have that kind of audience acclaim. And behind that is all of the other machinery that Toronto can deliver for them, the media and the industry, buyers and sellers in particular, agents, lawyers. I mean, you know, the number of people I've met, like Alfonso Cuaron, they've found agents with their first film in Toronto. You know, we had Alfonso's first film as a gala here in Toronto, and he and his cinematographer, who's won three Oscars, Emmanuel Levitsky, they both found agents after their first screening in Toronto. So, you know, these are huge moments for them too, because they arrive as unknown Mexican directors in a festival. And then suddenly, when they leave 10 days later, their career has moved a mega step. I mean, Alfonso... I mean, he's gone on to direct a Harry Potter film. Exactly. You know. Precisely, you know, and Oscar awarded films. So... You know, Guillermo del Toro, the same thing. So, you know, these are non-English language directors who have a huge loyalty and connection. Guillermo now lives in Toronto. And it's not because of the festival, but obviously the festival provided him his first access to the city. And then through that, you get to like it, know people, et cetera, et cetera, and think that maybe, well, that's a place he could actually live. So, yeah, Toronto's had a huge ripple effect through the international industry. And so, Pierce, for folks listening who are building their businesses or their organizations, What's your best advice on how to take a Canadian organization and build it into a globally recognizable brand? Hard work and you travel internationally. You absolutely cannot sit on your hands in this city and you have to be everywhere as much as you possibly can be and establish relationships on the ground. And I know that in today's world, I mean, it's a little bit different than when I started, Communications have obviously rapidly changed everything, cell phones, I mean, Zoom, but what we're looking at right now. But personal connections are invaluable and are irreplaceable, I think. Even, you know, all the post-pandemic chat about what's going to happen to film festivals, et cetera, et cetera. There's a need for people to physically get together. That's irreplaceable. I mean, there's Zoom, we have four of us here right now and you get, I don't know, as many people, 20 people on a Zoom. It's not like going to multiple cocktails or parties or lunches or dinners or walking down the Quesat in Cannes or walking along King Street in Toronto or, you know, or walking around Potsdamer uh, Platz in Berlin where you run into people accidentally, you know, connections. This person says, I want you to meet this person. And you have no idea how that changes your life. I can change your life, can alter the scope of your career, the direction of your career, just those chance encounters. That's what happens when you get together with people. And of course, actually physically traveling somewhere is a commitment to the person that is at the other end. I mean, it's a sign of respect to them that you have come that distance and you forge a personal bond as a result of that. It's much more, you know, the personal, I think, is still very important in businesses, especially when you're young and small and starting out and, you know, it's all become less personal or it's more personal than it becomes more slightly more impersonal when you get larger. So it's, yeah, you work like a dog, assume nothing, you micromanage, but I think you also need to have sort of a larger vision of what you're trying to accomplish and fully believe in that. It's got to be an idea that you get a reaction to from other people. There's got to be a response at the other end. So we obviously got a response here in Toronto. So even with just a local Toronto response, you can actually take that to the world and you have no idea where it's going to go how it's going to get magnified. 
I mean, you have examples, you know, if you've been to a festival like Cannes, you say, okay, that's what you can aspire to be. That's what it's going to look like if you become 100% successful. But you can imagine the early days of Toronto, that those were not the aspirations. It was to do something else that felt authentic for Toronto, that felt real for Toronto. So it was a grassroots thing that came from the bottom. It wasn't a top-down thing. And I think that's important too, to just remember where your roots were and where you've come from and to build on that and to never really lose sight of that. So going from the five-person staff, you know, maybe toggling up to 40 or 50 at the Festival of Festivals, all the way to now having a physical home for TIFF, the TIFF Bell Lightbox all year round, to have it at the scale that TIFF is now at. What was your biggest pinch me moment? Because you're describing, you know, a journey where you don't really know what's around the corner. You just need to keep putting energy in and putting that hard work in. Did you have a specific moment where you went, wow, I feel a step change here, or this was a huge inflection point for our journey? I thought a lot about this because, of course, you get asked that question too around the festival, around your career. And I think my answer would be it's a series of building blocks, incremental. And as I've watched other filmmakers build their career, like an Adam Agoyan, I'll use cite that, you know, Adam built his career step by step by step. And then you sort of, in hindsight, you look back and there may have been breakthrough moments, but at the moment you really weren't aware of it. I mean, there were defining moments in the history of the festival and maybe the institution, TIFF, where you sort of look back and say, oh yeah, right. You know, that was pretty important. I mean, obviously opening the building was one of those pinch me moments. I mean, it had taken us 10 years to so actually open it, it's there, and you realize, okay, this is a big step. You know, you've actually institutionalized yourself. You have a physical home. It's going to be pretty hard to remove us, you know, to kick us out. We've got a home. You know, it's like a museum or an art gallery. And what were you saying to the world by having a physical home year-round? Cinema is important as a cultural expression. There's a past. There's a future. We want to create a place where people can gather and learn from, talk about in all kinds of ways, either as an audience or as young filmmakers or as young critics or as senior members of the industry or whatever. It becomes a general gathering place for all things film or moving images. I guess you'd have to say these days moving images. The moving image culture, which was obviously the newest art form, somewhat taken for granted, now going through a lot of self-examination. But it needs those places, those sparks, where people feel that there's serious thinking going on, where there's a real love and passion for what you're involved with going on. It's like a library. You know, you know you're going to find book lovers there, and you know you're going to find librarians who love books. So a film center is a bit like, you know, you're going to see moving images, films, whatever, television, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, there's going to be a lot of people that share that interest. And it's, you're going to be surrounded by people who organizing it, who absolutely are passionate about it and are trying to think through some of the implications of what that will look like into the future, you know, what the future holds in store for this medium. So it's a think tank, you know, it's an agora, like a Greek meeting place, a public meeting ground space. So it's a variety of things. It's never one thing. A building should never be one thing. It should be a whole, a range of different interests should coalesce around a building. But that was probably, I mean, in my career, and I think in the history of, of the organization, that was one of those defining pinch me moments, 
yeah, that was definitely for the festival. It was just a series of incremental steps, you know, and there's everyone talks about the big chill, uh, you know, chariots of fire, maybe the first one, the big chill being the second one. The third one was perhaps American beauty. And then, you know, there's there's sort of like moments where it's like one film that puts you on the international map in a significant way and boosts your import. The rest of it is just a lot of, of slow building around it. Were you prepared personally for the upswing of interest and attention that TIFF ultimately received? No, I don't think, because I, I went as audience, I knew that there was an audience that was really passionate. And you just have no sense of how big that audience is or was or would be. But every time we tried to make the organization bigger, or the festival bigger, there was a response. We never had to really pull back. So it seemed like growth was limitless boundless you know you could kind of within reason obviously you couldn't take over the world but it was you know within the physical infrastructure cinemas etc cetera, etc cetera, the audience demand seemed to be there and more importantly uh, the support financially seemed to be there because we don't just live off revenues and receipts that you get from the public you actually have to obviously move into the government area but also seriously into the corporate area so corporations have to be there with significant financial support for you and so when you put out feelers and you, you sense that sense of excitement and people want to join you, want to support you, want to be there. I think the change for me came when, as opposed to us going and knocking on other people's doors, people came, started to come and knock on our door. That's probably the moment where the light begins to go on or, you know, you said this is actually a sea change. And I do remember moments where that started to change. But again, that's sort of incremental. Because at the beginning, our, we were doing a lot of asking. We were uh, knocking on a lot of doors, having to make a lot of pitches. And then there was a moment probably in the 80s, late 80s, where that all just started to switch around. And mm. people were, I mean, I'll never forget one festival. I think it was opening night and uh, it was the Elgin. It was probably the mid 90s. And somebody from Bell was on stage with us. And in the wings afterwards, they said, we need to have a conversation about us supporting you more. And it was not one that we had instigated. And it was just like, wow, okay, that's the sign that things are shifting. You've got a corporation like Bell coming to you with that type of energy and support and interest. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, one of those, <laughs> one of those moments. And in your last years as CEO, 2018, the lineup included films like Green Book that went on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Free Solo that went on to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary, and Roma, which won three Academy Awards, including Best Director. Having taken this small Canadian Yorkville-based festival on this massive global journey, how did it feel to close your final festival as CEO in 2018? It was an amazing year for me because so many of my friends, so many people from around the world were there. There was such an outpouring of support, personal support for me, sort of led up to the festival. I'd done kind of a farewell tour in Europe and done some wonderful dinners with people. And it was clear that there was a lot of affection on both our sides. I had huge affection and respect for so many of these people, and they felt the same was reciprocated. So I think when you've sort of arrived at that moment of mutual respect and you built something that was obviously as successful as the Tiffin, the festival and the Cinematheque and the library and all that stuff was, you kind of look back and as a young cinephile, I always said to myself and to Wayne, 
why do we have to go to London and why, you know, to the British Film Institute or why do we have to go to Paris and the Cinema de Francaise to see these films? You know, as youngsters, we were not given those experiences. We had the National Film Theater in Ottawa, but it wasn't quite the same. Why shouldn't we be able to replicate that in it's our the, own? The field of dreams principle. In Canada, exactly. Yeah. So when you feel like those are discussions that Wayne and I had when we were in our 20s in the 70s. So it arrived at 2018, like about whatever, 50 years later, it was like, wow, we've actually managed to accomplish this, you know, realize that dream. And it wasn't one we set out upon, you know, in a planned way. It just sort of the opportunities fell our way and we exploited them. So, yeah, you sort of you realized in a sense, I had accomplished everything I'd want to accomplish with the festival and with TIFF. And it was time, to, I knew it was time to pass it on to the next generation of people for them to reinvent it. And boy, I'm, I'm so glad I stepped down when I did. I chose exactly the right moment. 2018, I had a year of travel after before the pandemic hit. And I had a big project that I was about to embark on. And I really wanted to get my teeth into that. And after having been controlled by an institution, you know, the CEO, where you have so many responsibilities, your life's not your own. You know, you're traveling. The travel's not your own. You're expected to be here, et cetera, et cetera. People are pulling at you. I really wanted time to reflect and also to embark on a solo project, which is what it is, writing a book, where I just answered to myself, complete control over everything. So that felt it was exactly the right moment for me to leave. And I was just about to hit 72. And I thought it would be strange because... Toronto always had a youthful aspect, you know, compared to the big European festivals, they always looked like old men to us that were running them, you know, and Toronto was, you know, Wayne was young, I was young, Helga was young, we had a different kind of image, you know, Cameron, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, Noah, we all had the image of the youthful festival, you know, the dynamic, the coming, to be honest, I'm sure that that actually played well when we were traveling around the world, talking to filmmakers, especially young filmmakers, you know, we weren't part of the gray-haired set. So that was important to not overstay your welcome. And, you know, I mean, I know I look maybe a little bit younger than I actually am, but I just, you know, I figured Tiff did not need a 70-year-old CEO. And as you passed the torch in that final year, what guidance did you give, if any, in setting Cameron up for success? Of course, I've known... Cameron for 20, 25 years. So you never pass along one thing. It's imbibed. I would say the key is to listen, listen, listen. You clearly have a sense of where you want to be, where you want to go, but you have to get other people lined up behind you to do that. You can't do it by yourself. So you really need to be inclusive and listen to. I always said to everyone around me, Hire smarter people than yourself because they will make you look good. And I was never afraid of hiring smart people. I mean, I was surrounded by them and they were spectacular to work with. I learned so much from them and I never thought I was always the smartest person in the world. In the room, I thought I was, I just wanted to sort of manage a team of high performers. That is probably listen and hire the best. One cheeky question, though. Yeah, sure, sure. Go ahead with the cheeky questions. They're more fun. (laughs) Do you have a favorite movie? Oh, boy. I do. Yeah, I probably do because so uh, there's probably two. It's favorite because they were so impactful to my life. So it's the quality of the film mixed into, and maybe this is inevitable with any favorite film, you know, 
It's uh, something that when you were a kid or when you were younger, it had a huge impression on you. Maybe when you go back to it 40, 50 years later, it looks a little bit different. But in the case of these films, not as whole, because of course I, I totally remember the 18 or 19 or 20, I think I was probably 20 when I saw these two films within a week of each other. And they're both films by Godard, both the same director. And the first one I saw that changed my life and changed, altered my career, I knew immediately I would somehow end up in film and I would not be a historian. It was Weekend. And the second one I saw a week later, which is a slightly more accessible film, was Pierrot Le Fou, made around the same time. One was 67, one was 65. And those films, whenever I see them, they still deeply move me and touch me and... In the case of Weekend, it's not an emotional film. It's a film that you're just, it's extraordinary in terms of its imagination and its playfulness and its creativity. And there is a romanticism around uh, Pierrot Le Fou because of the relationship between Belmondo and Anna Karina that I never fail to respond to that's so moving and touching. But there's so many other things going on in that film too. So those are probably my two, yeah, absolute favorite films. It's interesting that you say that was the moment you knew you'd be in film and you wouldn't be a historian. But I feel like there's so many historian-esque elements weaved into how you actually grew TIFF. You know, having the TIFF Bell Lightbox, showing the history of film, showcasing it, developing yeah. a legacy. I mean, True. I feel like that's a historian's lens to what this festival became. So because I had the historical, I was in, the interest as a historian was to look back at the past. And I've always had a great reverence for the past and interest in learning from the past and examining the past and dissecting the past. I still read an enormous amount of history. I'm passionate about it. And the book I'm writing now is a history. I'm writing a history of film festivals because no one's written a comprehensive global history of film festivals. And it's just an opportunity for me to take a lot of the knowledge I've acquired over 50 years, having experienced other festivals, but also beginning to put a lens on it from my own perspective in terms of interpreting that history. So it's not just a factual history, it's an interpretive history, which is what has always fascinated me. But I wanted, like I think the context within which filmmakers or any artists work, you know, there's some artists who, of course, it's a radical break with the past, but I think even like a Picasso or a Joyce, they're completely aware of what preceded you you're not naive. You're not uh, an idiot savant. You know, you actually come, you know, art history or, you know, the history of literature and you've read a lot before you break all the rules. Godard certainly knew the history of cinema as well as I did, if not more. He was a passionate cinephile. And I think for myself, Wayne and others, it was, we looked at the BFI in London and we looked at the Cinémathèque Française. The Cinémathèque Française spawned a film, a school of filmmakers, the French New Wave. It actually had a direct impact on film production. And I think we wanted, I at a certain point thought for Canadian cinema, we needed to do this as well. We needed to provide a, like a vibrant place where young Canadian filmmakers could look at the history of cinema, world cinema, but they could also see the history of Canadian film, which is very difficult to see even now. I mean, I'm shocked and continue to be shocked and saddened, but there's, you know, it needs to be a place where, they can connect to see what preceded them so that they can then go on to break a whole bunch of rules. I think without that knowledge, you're somewhat untethered, limited. Exactly. You're a little untethered. 
And not that you should have total reverence for the past. I don't agree with that at all. But you should have knowledge of it to break all of those rules and to cut against it. And of course, there's obviously a lot to be learned from the past. You know, we continue to repeat so many of the mistakes from the past. And you sort of say to yourself, like, why are we doomed to repeat these? Like, why haven't we learned from them? And is that just a failure in the educational system? So there was an educational aspect to this as well. And it's funny, I just came from a, a memorial this weekend of a friend who was an educator, but also a filmmaker and a playwright. But he and my friend Peter Harcourt were passionate educators. They actually believed so deeply and fundamentally in the process of teaching. And when you come in touch with people, they are remarkable because as a youngster, they can change your life. And it's not just a film like Weekend or Pierrot Le Fou that changes your life. It's also those people you run into that can change your life. So I think that, you know, for TIFF to function as a site where that happens, you know, whether it's curators or, you know, hopefully it's the curators that you come in touch with, you know, people that think about cinema, love about cinema, they're educators in a different kind of way. I think very powerful. So, you know, going to Rob Fothergill's memorial made me think more about this whole notion of, of being a passionate and committed educator. Because I remember at university not feeling that everybody was that. You know, we've all had bad teachers who are, we just kind of feel are going through the motions. But when you run into somebody who's exciting and dynamic and, mm-hmm. you know, youthful and, and asking a whole series of questions and, you know, absolutely connecting with you. So TIFF should have elements of that as well. It should have, you know, the excitement of going to a festival and connecting with people from around the world, filmmakers and producers and cinematographers and actors and people that are in from town. I mean, always find extraordinary. I'd go to the volunteer parties at the end of the festival and there'd be volunteers from Scotland. It wasn't just their first year. Like They'd done this for 10 to 15 years. They would take two weeks off and come to Toronto. There's their holiday to volunteer at the film festival in Toronto. And that was deeply moving and humbling but you also realize something was going on here at the same time that was kind of happening organically that you couldn't control but you were so happy about it because you'd actually managed your tentacles were international i mean there's so many or two amazing stories i could tell you please unprompted where the first time i was in paris i was with brendan i was on a board tour and this is a board tour where there was a deep reluctance on the part of the board to build Tiffel Lightbox. It was a huge financial, you know, $200 million project. And our annual budget was $10 million. So the smartest thing we did was we took a bunch of the key board members on a tour to Europe to show them like-minded institutions with Paris, Berlin, London, Lyon, et cetera, et cetera. And when we were in a hotel in Paris, Brendan and I, we got into the elevator and there were an American couple that were there. And of course, we immediately, like we were talking, Brendan and I were talking in English, and et cetera, et cetera. And they said, where are you from? Toronto. First word out of their mouth, the film festival. <laughs> and of course, this was in front of Brendan. So it looks as if it, it's scripted, something exactly scripted. And I thought, holy wow. You know, this was like you're thousands of miles away from Toronto. It's a hotel. It wasn't a during a film festival. It was just like, I don't know, it was November or something, October. And the first word, as soon as he said the word Toronto, that was one story. I remember Dalton McGinty, you know, who was the Ontario Premier, he went to on a trip to India, one of those business trips with, with a whole bunch of business leaders. And I guess he was in Mumbai 
and he got up on stage and introduced himself as the premier of Ontario. Blank. Then as soon as he said Toronto, <laughs> exactly the same reaction in Mumbai, Toronto Film Festival. They got him <laughs> right away. And my third story, which is also fun, I was in New York and I went to one of the huge, great, big secondhand bookstores. Can't remember the name of it now. So famous. And I just, you know, I was checking out and the clerk was behind the counter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we just started to talk or, you know, as I was paying for the book, he just said, you know, where are you from, Toronto? And it was exactly the same reaction. He said he had no idea who he was. He said, Toronto, they have the festival up there that we need here in New York. Our New York wow. was nowhere near as good as yours. <laughs> Again, unprompted, unscripted. Not yet. knowing who Blue. he's speaking to at all. He was I didn't tell him, by the way. I didn't tell him. But it was so, you know, it was, again, this was probably 20 years ago, easily 20 years ago. So it was like, wow, you realize that the depth of your reach around the world is so powerful. It's something. Was, was it the Strand bookstore? It was exactly. Thank you. It was the Strand. Yeah, I realized slowly over the years that you keep telling this to politicians the film festival is your brand. People know, I mean, the Maple Leafs, the Blue Jays, no, that's just North America. In terms of international, whatever you want to call it, brand and awareness, the film festival is what puts Toronto on the map 100%. And it's actually to see that in action as I did, it surprised me too. And it was always wonderful, of course, totally heartwarming to think, wow, I'm involved in this organization. And I'm actually running this organization that's made such an immense international impact. Because as I said, Canada was so parochial when I was younger, so provincial, so timid. <laughs> we never saw ourselves as world players. We really didn't. Nobody saw us. You know, because I had an English mom and I spent all my high school in Germany, I didn't have that feeling at all. It's like, no, you could, Canadians could obviously excel on the world scale. We didn't have to feel embarrassed about anything. And that was probably the confidence that came from having a British mother. So... It's like, why the hell can't you invent this in Canada? So to see TIFF, the building up, it was actually, the model was the British Film Institute in London. If, I don't know if you've ever visited it or the Cinematheque Française in Paris. And so we kind of feel that you built your own BFI or you built your own Cinematheque Française. That's a pretty big deal. Why not us, right? You and Wayne sitting going, let's just us? do it. I mean, David Cronenberg, I've been so closely associated with David's career. You know, I remember when David was reviled as a filmmaker here in Canada. You obviously are too young to have experienced this, but I lived it. You know, the articles, the criticism that was leveled against David, these films should not be funded. They were, I mean, unbelievable uh, stuff that Robert Fulford wrote. And to see David, you know, now being acclaimed as one of the great auteurs in the world, not just Canadian director, internationally acclaimed auteurs is, and to have been so deeply connected with his career as well as Adam and others, you know, from the Toronto scene, Patricia, Bruce, Peter, you know, but to see those filmmakers elevated to that stature and have been a part of that and to have said to the world, we're going to privilege Canadian cinema here in Toronto and then to have actually seen the seeds be planted here and then, you know, grow elsewhere. Yeah, that was a big, big, uh, that's been a huge morale booster. Yeah, you feel like you've had an impact. Undoubtedly. Oh, you made me revisit the past, Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> Personally. It's very meta. A historian doing a historical dive into their own history. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. What do you make of direct-to-streaming premieres? This is my very, very uninformed opinion, but I feel like COVID really skewed the people want to stream things at home. Let's 
send a whole yep. bunch of movies direct to people through, you know, whether it's Netflix or Disney plus, yeah. Yep. How do you understand it? And what do you feel is lost in that process? Well, okay. I'm a historian. So I'll put it in context. You can't forget. There were a lot of films that went directly to VHS right. or that were shelved. It weren't shown. They just simply said, or they were dumped and, you know, but that was almost like a, an asterisk, like, by the way, that went direct to VHS. You know, that was a caveat. But there were so many of them that happened. Right. I mean, you have no idea. Or there were films that would be dumped. You know, we'd simply, okay, well, screen this film once in Tallahoosee, Tennessee, or whatever, and that's it. And then, you know, we'll just write it off because we know it's not going to make any kind of money. So you can't put good money behind bad money at the end of the day. So not every film deserves and, you know, should get a release in the same way that every film, every book that's published will not become a bestseller. Obviously, there's a transitional moment that's going on right now. So I think, you know, theatrical is very afraid of the fact that so many of these films are going to go directly into streaming. But the streamers themselves are sort of trying to locate themselves within this, and they're still working within an old framework. So you notice that, you know, Scorsese's new film, which is costing like 160 million or something, is going to get a theatrical release in the fall. And there's a couple of other major directors, and I've just forgotten their names also, that you we're all very keen to see their films. They're going to have a theatrical release. And we're, you know, I'm sort of breathing a sigh of release that I'm not going to have to look at it on, on streaming. There's undoubtedly huge impact through theatrical, huge, that you can never replicate on online streaming. You just cannot replicate that. So like everything, you know, the 10 films won't go direct to uh, streaming. They won't. There's too much money involved still theatrically. I think... The post-pandemic shakedown is going to take another 10 years. So everything right now is just hypothetical. We're just sort of theorizing because I'm waiting for the shoe to drop where a lot of cinemas start to close. Like I can't believe that there's as many open as are still open because so many people have actually gravitated to streaming. And I think that <laughs> I know exhibition and I know exhibitors really well. They're very conservative and it's going to take a long time for that to happen. It may take another five years before they start to peel away. And then you'll see a really major tectonic shift. Meanwhile, it'll be bits of the new and bits of the old colliding with each other, which is traditionally the way cinema has worked anyway. There'll never be one fracture, like that one moment where it all changes. I mean, it took at least 10 years for cinemas to become digitized in terms of projection. It was a mix of celluloid, you know, physical projectors with celluloid film, film tins, as well as digital. And I lived through that because we were actually at the head of the digital curve. We got digital projectors into our cinemas much earlier than the. Um... So I, you know how conservative the industry actually is. It's one of the most conservative industries I've ever run into. Even young filmmakers want a theatrical release because they know that they will get it's much more of a boost to their career than going to the great unknown of streaming where they don't really know the numbers. So it, it doesn't help them in terms of their own personal career and uh, giving them a lift. They're all looking for a theatrical release. They're all looking for the live experience, a festival experience with an audience. It's astounding, but understandable. I mean, why wouldn't you? You made a film that's taking probably three to five years of your life, a lot of money, and you just have it like, it's like nothing. You can't yeah. take your parents. You can't take your friends. You don't have this moment, you know, in the spotlight where you're standing on a stage and yeah. or talking to the press and media. You're not doing it so you get a data back end on how many people clicked and when they stopped watching. Totally. Totally. It's We're all humans. We want human interchange. Yeah. You know, you don't want to slot a CD in or stream, you know, Led Zeppelin. You want to go and hear them, yeah. see them. You know, it's still the live performance is phenomenally 
powerful. And you're seeing this now reverence for vinyl records. And yeah, I know it's this whole generation rediscovering what tube amps versus semiconductor right. amps, you know, and how much yeah, more yeah. real it feels. And so I wonder if we're on that journey similarly in, in film. Well, a little bit, but the vinyl thing is still technology, you know, and it's still sort of like a, we will always constantly reinvent the past until it totally disappears. But I think that well, I was always asked this question 20 years ago in terms of like, why are you building the building and our festival is going to continue to exist, et cetera, et cetera. I always said, I totally believe, especially for the big ones, because it's anything live, be it opera, be it, you know, symphonic music, be it rock bands, anything theater, there's that will never be replicated. You will never, ever take the human element away. It may diminish in terms of the number of people that go to that go to museums, who go to operas, et cetera, et cetera. But the live art form will still exist. And so whether film turns into something like a museum piece, like opera, in the future, we don't know. And it may well. But if that's the case, then something like Tiff Bell Lightbox is perfectly positioned to still run film as celluloid and run all the digital mediums. But there'll still be the need, like there is for the Louvre, like for MoMA, for the great museums of this world, or the opera houses. There'll still be that need. And if we're one of the few film institutions in the world, moving image institutions in the world, great, we're well positioned. Plus, when it comes to the film festival, we're one of the biggest now in the world anyway, with a huge audience. We'll continue to have that audience impact. Whether it's going to be a smaller audience, you can't tell. There may be actually more audience demand than less in the future. You honestly, it's all crystal gazing. You have no idea at all. I'm still encouraged by the number of young kids we're watching incredibly arcane art films. <laughs> I mean, a friend of mine, you know, is a part of a cine group in a film club in Italy. And the stuff they're looking at is like, ah, oh, wow, that's, this is pure cinematech programming. I mean, these are the classics of cinema, people born before they were born. It's <laughs> like, wow, okay. If there's still that curiosity on an online group, that gives me a lot of hope for the future. And I think there will always be that. I mean, as I said, the audience may get smaller and smaller. It may become less and less of a mass medium. But the fact that the streamers are looking to the major filmmakers to give them a lot of profile also says something about how important that is. And that may be just the sort of the tail end of the dying art form of film. They may invent their own tours and stars. Again, I honestly don't know. I don't do a lot of streaming. I do some, but it's all historic material. Mm -hmm. I can't get on DVD or see at the Cinematheque. So I'm a little bit into this world, but I'm not like I'm not watching series endlessly. I'm not into that part of it. There's too much film I still haven't seen. A lot of stuff I want to revisit, which is what I've been doing in my, quote, retirement. I've seen a lot of old films. It doesn't sound like retirement at all, but... <laughs> um... No, it's not. It's fun. It's great. I'm having a blast, actually. It's nice to not have the responsibility. Yeah, just be responsible to myself. It's interesting now. I know you haven't seen series, but did you hear about the series WandaVision? Don't think so. So it came out in COVID. It just sparked what you just said. So it was a Marvel character, but they put them in a 10-episode series, and every series was a period piece where they moved through the different eras of film. And yeah. so it was modern-day superheroes with these powers, but they put them in 50s, then 60s, then 70s sitcoms, 80s period piece, a 90s lifestyle sitcom with a live audience. And they actually recorded it with a live audience. And this, what went on online was it was the most unexpected popular Marvel thing 
But a big underlying reason is majority of, I think, the fan base, they had never seen a show like that before. And I guess what it was tied to is people just got more and more curious about, it was literally the first episode was like black and white in the 50s with the sort right. of hunky-dory oh, wow. co-worker. And the yeah, yeah. the humor was very, like, I love Lucy. And so it almost just its own sort of historical piece every episode. And I thought it was, it'd be interesting if you'd seen that because I thought you'd dig it. It's Marvel and it's new. It was actually one of the most interesting things I think they did. WandaVision. Yeah, WandaVision. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So there may, well, you know, there's obviously a lot of nostalgia in pop culture, isn't there? Yeah. You go back. And people possibly. love it. Yeah, they do. I mean, fashion's always reinventing itself. You go back to earlier fashions and find them and then update them and change them and modify them. Yeah. It's hard to be a hundred percent creative and imaginative. So there's always a reinvention of things that have happened before. I mean, I think a lot of filmmakers feel that they're, retreading old stories, old narratives. I mean, you know, narrative, of course, goes back to Homer. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's certain stories and tales that have to be retold and retold in a modern way, you know, yeah. updated in a modern kind of way. So that's incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Happy to talk. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hi, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Are you going to TIFF 2023? Yes. I would like to. Yeah. <laughs> there are two movies that I want to tell you guys about. Tell us. One is called Mountain Queen. Mountain Queen, the summits of Lakpa Sherpa. Lakpa is the first Nepali woman to summit and descend Mount Everest. She's now a single mom working at a Connecticut Whole Foods. She actually, in this documentary heads back to Everest to make a better life for her two daughters to show them her resilience um, in this documentary. And I read this description. I'm like, I would love to see this movie. So let's rewind. Yes. So she climbs Everest. Yes. She breaks a world record. Her record breaking 10th climb was on May 12, 2022. She climbs Everest 10 times. The most of any woman in the world. Then settles into her day-to-day -day in Connecticut. Working at Whole Foods with two daughters. Amar, what's the other one? The Everest one was a lot more inspiring. The other one is, it's called Dumb Money. It's basically about that entire period of time during COVID when the GameStop stock went up and up and up. So it's the recap of that time. What happened? So GameStop became what the internet would call a meme stock where it became somewhat known in a small circle that large hedge funds were planning on shorting the GameStop stock. And so the masses of the internet started to buy up the stock so that the short wouldn't work. And so these hedge funds lost billions of dollars on this. And so there was a huge controversy with like certain exchanges completely stopping sales or and buying of stocks to prevent this from happening, which is like a whole infringement upon the free market. And so I'm sure this documentary is about how all of that went down, how a lot of regular folks got huge payouts from just following online forums and buying things as a joke and actually having it pay off. One of the more recent controversies was chocolate price fixing. Did you hear about this? Is it similar to the bread price fixing? Yes. 
but all the sweeter. <laughs> As part of the investigation in June 2013, that's now 10 years ago, Hershey Canada pleaded guilty of criminal charges of price fixing and was fined $4 million, which to my latest math is about 4 million chocolate bars. The bread, I mean, we won't, we won't go into the bread, but I felt like the chocolate was, I was, I was shocked. Consumer of a lot of chocolate and bread. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we are all victims. So Pierce. Oh, he is so cultured. I actually want to make a list of all of his favorite movies and like start going through them. A lot of really cool Canadian cinema too, which I would like to get a bit more exposure to. But so many things he mentioned, I was just like, well, I'm not cultured enough for that. Maybe <laughs> one day. So my question to you too, I know it's always hard to pick an absolute favorite. So let's do maybe top three or most recent favorite movies. Oh, I really should have seen this one coming. <laughs> <laughs> so it's on my mind, but Knives Out mm -hmm. was so incredibly fun. I love a great ensemble cast with many meandering subplots and a larger plot. I find it just like a tapas of story throughout the entire movie. Oh, so I could not pick a Mission Impossible. Mm. <laughs> I could not pick a specific Mission Impossible, but I'd say the Mission Impossible franchise. I'd say the whole franchise and the way the franchise has evolved. It's a movie going experience. So Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Love that movie. Uh, has to be part of my top three. Okay, these are just the ones coming to mind right now. So I guess if they're coming to mind, <laughs> they should be part of my top. One is Finding Nemo. I really, <laughs> really love that movie uh, when it comes to the animation animated ones. And I'm going to say Matilda because I watched it so much growing up. And I probably have it all memorized. The original but, uh, Matilda? The original Matilda. The one I feel like name. every person has like that one movie that they just had to watch over and over again as a kid, whether Matilda. it's because it's the only movie you had on VHS <laughs> or DVD, or it was just like your favorite movie. It was my sister's. That's why I had to watch it so much. Oh, this is easy. My third is easy. Home Alone. Good one. Of course. Yes. Elizabeth, what about you? So... I have a hard time choosing a favorite movie too, but like this question always comes up. So I decided to finally pick one years ago. And so it's Gattaca. Really? Yeah. Oh, such a masterpiece in my mind. So Gattaca touches on the topic of eugenics. So in this world, people genetically modify their children to give them the best outlooks on life. And so the main character is conceived naturally. And so he has to fight the destiny that society has decided for him as somebody who is quote unquote invalid. And so his brother is genetically modified and is deemed superior in every sense. And so there's this one scene that is just really ingrained in my mind where the two brothers have a swimming competition out into sea. And as children, the genetically modified brother has always won this competition. But in this scene, the main character wins and the brother almost drowns. And so he has to save him. And so the brother asks him how he won. And he replies that he never saved anything for the swim back, showing that he was willing to die 
to prove himself then and there. He's willing to do what other people wouldn't. And so that's how he's going to succeed in life as somebody who does not fit the mold that society wanted him to be.